Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, To Jerusalem. I'm not telling you a grand revelation when I say that the relationship of Christians to Jews has been a very complicated one. And I say it's complicated because the conversation itself depends on how you understand the word Christian. If the word is meant to talk about the concept of Christendom, you know, the so-called Christian nations, well, then the matter involves a very bad history. But even among confessing Christians, those who have genuinely repented of their sins, they've surrendered their lives by faith into the hands of Jesus, you know, the flesh, the old sin nature, sometimes rouses its ugly head and one hears comments about the Jews or about Israel that should never be heard. We come now to a section in Acts where Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and it's his reason for going there that should capture our attention. You know, it must be remembered how different Jerusalem was for Paul as it was for the pilgrims who visited today. You know, for Paul, that was still the time when the temple dominated the skyline. For Paul, it was the place where just a few years before, Jesus was crucified and raised. It was also the place where not that long ago the church had begun. You know, and also Paul would have very vivid memories of Stephen being stoned to death right in front of him while he guarded the garments of the men who were stoning him to death while he gave approval. And how the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the various other elements hated Jesus and they hated the formation of the church. What kind of a man was Paul back then, you know, when he approved of the stoning of Stephen? You know, in Philippians 3, 5, he says he was then a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a rising star among the Pharisees. He had an inflamed zeal to persecute the church. And then Paul would have remembered that after Christ had called him, that he had attempted to join the followers of Jesus and how they had been afraid of him and how Barnabas had vouched for him and brought him into the Christian fellowship there. And he would have remembered how the same group that had stoned Stephen to death had then attempted to stone him to death. Paul would have remembered that after, that is after the three years where, you know, the risen Jesus had trained him in Arabia, how he had then gone to meet with the apostles at Jerusalem and how they had embraced him. He would have also remembered the council of Jerusalem and how the leadership of the Jerusalem church had made a decree that the Gentiles were not required to be circumcised and how the Jerusalem church gave leadership to the evangelization of Greeks and Romans and all the other nations on earth. And now Paul was going back, but this time he was going back as the man who was known as the missionary to the Gentiles. You know, in this series, we won't get to Acts chapter 21, but there we meet a man named Agabus, who's a prophet, who tells Paul that his hands and his feet will be bound in Jerusalem, that he'll be imprisoned and that sufferings await him. But Paul already knew all of that. In chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, he says that the Holy Spirit had been telling him that sufferings did await him. So why is he going and why not stay in Ephesus? Yeah, there's been a riot in Ephesus to be sure, but the riot has been quelled. And furthermore, the civic authorities had shown they were ready to protect both Paul and the Christians. Ephesus, it would in just a few years become the center of global Christianity. I mean, why not stay and strengthen the seminary that had begun and continue to grow the church and from there 
raise up missionaries for global Christianity. All the pieces are in place for doing just that. But Paul never thought that way. He was a servant of Jesus. He's not a man looking to seize opportunities, but rather he is to do that which Christ has commanded him to do. And as we've already seen, Paul, before he goes to Jerusalem, is going back to Greece, and there he'll collect an offering for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, who at that time were suffering poverty. You were never told why that was, but we can guess. You know, it might have been that the persecution against the Jerusalem church had grown to the extent that Christians had a hard time making a living there. Christian Jews had become marginalized Jews. And although Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, he had never lost his love for his own people. I mean, you just listen to how he expresses himself in Romans 9, 1 to 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. See, Paul deeply experienced sorrow for unsaved Israel, but he also felt deeply connected to Jewish followers of Jesus, and he thought the Gentile Christians needed to feel the same way. Listen again how Paul writes the Roman Christians, Romans 15, 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessings. I mean, you hear those words, they owe it to them. Indeed, if you're a Gentile today, and if as a Gentile, you've experienced forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, as well as the Holy Spirit living within, the hope of eternity, how did you get that? Well, you might say it all came from Jesus, and of course that's true, it's the right answer. But Jesus didn't come to you in a vacuum. Rather, he is the fulfillment of the hopes and longings of Israel. And as a Christian, there is not one spiritual blessing you have that did not come from Israel. You owe it to them. You owe Israel an eternal debt of gratitude. They not only passed on the scripture, they protected the scripture at the cost of their lives. The Bible you hold was delivered to you from Jewish hands. And that same book was protected, and therefore it's also stained with Jewish blood. The martyrs, you owe it to them. Let me say this as boldly and as plainly as I know how. There must never be among followers of Jesus even a hint of anti-Semitism. Such an attitude would be shameful among us. If that's true of Israel, what then do we owe believing Israel? Israel that embraced Jesus as Messiah. For the very first Christian church, indeed, the very first followers of Jesus were all Jews. What then do we owe them? And as Paul hears of the sufferings of the faithful followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, he, the missionary to the Gentiles, is going to the Gentiles to tell them of their obligation. They must support the suffering church in Jerusalem. You know, as wonderful as continuing on in in Ephesus must have seemed to him, it would have been sin for Paul to remain there. He must use his influence to help the Jewish followers of their Messiah. You know, after all that, having captured Paul's heart to go back to Jerusalem, let's follow what Luke describes. I'm reading Acts 21 to 3. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. 
There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. See, the uproar that Luke was describing was the riot against Christians that had occurred in Ephesus. So that crisis is now over, and since Paul is not abandoning the church in a time of crisis, he's now free to leave. So let's get a little background. You're going to remember that Paul had written the letter of 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus, and according to that letter, Paul tells us when he left, 1 Corinthians 6, 7-9. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you as the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so it was probably May of AD 55 when Paul had left Ephesus. He celebrated Pentecost one more time in Ephesus. You know, Pentecost was so important for the early church because that was not only the time or the day that the Holy Spirit fell. It was also the day when the church of Jesus was founded. It's a celebration of the birthday of the church. But Paul was still a practicing Jew. He would no doubt have celebrated the Jewish feast, also called the Feast of Weeks, which was a celebration of the beginning of the early weeks of the harvest. So penta means 50, It came 50 days after Passover, and it was a celebration of the Lord's provision in the harvest. But of course, as a Christian, now we would have celebrated the provision of the Holy Spirit. You know, then shortly after that, Paul sent for the disciples. And when it says he sent for the disciples, I I think that must mean not just, you know, the Christian leaders in Ephesus. It meant every Christian who was able to be there in that city. And he was saying goodbye to them. Their pastor was now leaving them. He'd never visit that church again. His work was over. They would not see his face again. We're going to find out later that he would meet with the Ephesian elders one more time, but that would be in Miletus, about a two-day walk from Ephesus. They would come to him, but he would not be going to them. This now is going to be one of the great transitions in Paul's life. It's not so unique. I mean, we all have transitions where things which were once a part of our lives no longer come back. We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed. How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. Derived from Dr. John Neufeld's audio series and alternative lifestyle, this is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. Request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. After Paul had said goodbye to the believers at Ephesus, he set sail for Macedonia. And his first stop would have been in Troas, which was still, to put in our modern day terms, it was still you know, on the coast of Turkey and yet not far from the coast of Greece. You know, Luke doesn't mention that Paul went to Troas, but, but Paul does mention it in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12, 
we find out that there's a Christian church there and someone had preached the gospel there and it had been fruitful. And Paul tells the Corinthians that while he was in Troas, he was waiting for Titus. But Titus, for reasons that Paul doesn't explain, was unable to join him there. And so Paul set sail from Troas for Macedonia. And it was there in Macedonia, probably in the city of Philippi, that that Titus joined him. Listen to how Paul describes that as he writes to the Corinthians from Macedonia. And here I'm reading 2 Corinthians 7, 5 to 7. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we are afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. See, we have to imagine Paul raising money for, you know, the church in Jerusalem at a time when he desperately needed a rest. You know, the wear and tear on his body was more than many of us would have borne. You know, earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul spoke of God as the God of all comfort. He says that during this time when he had left Ephesus and was traveling to Macedonia, that he experienced so much affliction that he had despaired of life itself. He said he felt as if he had received the sentence of death. And I don't think we can point out, you know, one situation that was the ultimate cause of that. No doubt the riots in Ephesus contributed greatly to his exhaustion and suffering, but it was just the last straw in an ever-increasing load. You know, Paul speaks of having, you know, the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. He speaks of being afflicted in every way, but not crushed. So let's get back to Paul's arrival in Macedonia after three years in Ephesus. So it was in Ephesus that Paul received the word that the church he had founded in Corinth was in trouble. You know, factions, lawsuits among members, sexual immorality, Christian freedom taken to license, false teaching, lack of love. It was hard for Paul to hear all of that. And it had been in Ephesus that he had sent the letter of 1 Corinthians. And then when that letter was not well received by the church there, Paul wrote another letter, one that he said he wrote out of much affliction and anguish in heart and with many tears. And having written that painful letter, Paul arrives in northern Greece or in Macedonia, wondering what the Christians in southern Greece, or most specifically, what the Christians in Corinth were now thinking. And as Paul arrived in Philippi, he'd already suffered so many physical attacks, and now he didn't know if the church in Corinth had utterly rejected him. And what's more, he had wanted to go through the Greek churches raising money for the suffering Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And it would seem that the entire church world was now so inflamed with controversy. How is that going to happen? Would he just spend his time putting out fires? I mean, he was exhausted and discouraged. How is he supposed to raise money? He had so wanted that the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the world would unite in solidarity for each other. How would that happen? Or were the internal struggles in Corinth so great that it was now impossible? And then amazingly, Titus, who hadn't shown up in Troas, now shows up in Macedonia. And Titus has spent a great deal of time with the church in Corinth, and he had news. And it was better news than Paul would have expected. The church in Corinth had repented of their sins, and they'd taken action against those who didn't repent. And yet, Titus said, they were dealing gently with those who hadn't repented, and it was leading to unity in the church. In short, they were having a revival in Corinth. 
They were turning back to Jesus, to their first love, and they were putting behind them the things that had once torn them apart. And Paul could scarcely contain his joy. And that's what he meant when he called God the God of all comfort. I mean, news that the Holy Spirit was at work in the church in Corinth and that the agenda to show solidarity between Jews and Christians was back on track. And so if you're keeping track, it was right there from Macedonia that Paul writes the Corinthians another letter, 2 Corinthians. And as we've seen before, he makes mention of the fact that when he arrives, he's going to be collecting money for the desperate Christians in Jerusalem. But he does more. He tells the Corinthians about his efforts to raise funds in Macedonia. And here I'm quoting 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 4. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See, what an experience the the tired and worn-out Apostle Paul had in Macedonia. The Philippian church had taken the lead. And by the way, you know, the Philippian church, you know, the church where Lydia had come to Christ and the Philippian jailer had come to Christ. I mean, that church, if you want one that's a model of a New Testament church, it's the Philippian church. I mean, can you imagine What joy they brought to Paul, and more so. I mean, these Christians in Macedonia were also struggling with their own poverty, and yet they begged Paul that he might allow them that they might give even more. I sometimes, you know, try to imagine that scene. I mean, Paul would have said, I mean, you've already given more than enough, and besides, you don't have that much yourself. You're poor. And they responded, don't you take away from us the joy of giving. We want to do more. You know, I see from that two very important lessons. I mean, the first is that it really is better to give than to receive. I mean, giving is a reflection of the deep concern over the well-being of another, as well as viewing our resources, not as ours, but as resources entrusted to us so that we might use them wisely for the glory of God. But there's another matter, and that's the second lesson. It's the lesson of the passionate love the Gentile Christians had for their Jewish brothers and sisters. You know, in our day, You know, when the vast majority of the Christian church is a Gentile church, it's so easy to forget that the gospel came to us from Israel. We forget that all the Old Testament prophets were Jews. We forget that our Savior was a Jew. We forget that the 12 apostles of Jesus were Jews. We forget that the first missionaries that brought the gospel to us were Jews. You know, we forget that the first Christian church was entirely Jewish. And we often forget that outside of Luke's writings, that is the book of Luke and the book of Acts, the rest of our Bible, the other 64 books, were all written by Jews. It's this phenomenon that we Gentile Christians must never forget. We're obligated to show gratefulness to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's get back to our Acts account. Luke tells us that when Paul had completed his work in Macedonia, which was also northern Greece, I mean, he then traveled south, says Luke, and came to Greece or southern Greece. And there, says Luke, Paul would spend three months. And those months were likely winter months, and it would have been dangerous for him to sail. But it was also there, probably in Corinth, that Luke says a plot was made against him by the Jews. And here he uses the word not as I've used it in this message. You know, when Luke says the Jews, he means the leadership of the synagogue in Corinth. And yeah, that's the same synagogue that had once hauled Paul off to court. 
They had failed then, and now they were up to something else. And so Paul is forced to abandon his plans to sail out of the harbor at Corinth. Instead, he goes back on foot up north. But it turns out that God lightened his load. That's because Paul was not called to bear his burdens alone. So look at Acts 24 to 6. So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, and Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. The first man is Sopater the Berean. You remember the Bereans? You know, when all the other synagogues turned against Paul, the synagogue in Berea that was diligent in learning the scripture, and this man, Sopater, you know, it's from that church, that great Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church that he comes from. Other good men are also among this company. And then these men went ahead of Paul. They crossed the sea. They went over to Troas again. And by the time Paul arrived, they no doubt had made all of the arrangement, taken care of all the details, and just eased Paul's burdens. His mission was a success. Paul had with him the money from the offerings and the goodwill to bind the hearts of Jewish and Gentile believers together. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile had been broken. Ah, May that continue today. Thanks for your message, John. You know, we've both had the privilege to join Back to the Bible Canada for its Israel Experience Tours. How has the experience increased your appreciation for the place of Israel historically and in the future? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I say this often when we go with groups of people to Israel that once you've been there, it's very likely that you will never read your Bible the same way again. I mean, obviously, um, you'll see the very places that things happen. But, you know, I mean, the whole thing about Israel itself and with Jerusalem in specific, it really tells us also that in the future, I mean, this is going to be the place where Christ sets up his physical throne. And so, I mean, we're, we're really embarking on territory here that is very important for believers and in terms of our own faith. And so I think I can understand why Paul felt such longing about going back to Jerusalem. I, I feel the same thing. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We've been holding off, but now is the time to make an exciting announcement about In Doubt. The Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is now welcoming Andrew Marcus as its new host and director of In Doubt Ministries. Now, if his name rings a bell, it's probably because Andrew is an award-winning singer, songwriter, and pastor. Andrew brings so much to the ministry, including a master's degree in theology, a huge network of Christian influencers and leaders, and most important, a vision and heart to reach young people with the truth of God's Word. So please pray. Pray for Andrew's leadership and pray that In Doubt would have a profound impact on the spiritual journey of many young adults across our nation. These are challenging days and young adults need to know that God's Word is reliable and speaks into every question of faith, life, and culture. To find out more, check out indoubt.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425.